0: Uh, Some things are so common that we really don't think much about them until they become a really big problem, and anger is one of those things. In the story of Cain and Abel we just read, Cain gets very angry because his brother Abel's offering is accepted, and Cain's presumably half-hearted and disobedient offering was rejected, so he lashed out. And We relate to Cain. When a friend or coworker outshines us, we get defensive. And we may put them down. We may something say something snide or demeaning just to level the playing field a little bit. But I don't know anyone personally who has allowed this kind of thing to escalate to murder, and yet that's what Cain did, and he paid the price. So did Abel. Anger is one of the earliest recorded human emotions, and it fills the pages of scripture. Just a few verses later, Cain's descendant Lamech boasts to his two wives that he had killed a man who insulted him. It really got him back. Samson spends his might in anger toward the Philistines. Saul is angry that David outshines him, and so he tries to kill him for years until he becomes himself killed on the battlefield. Then David's captain Joab, um, this is a guy you really don't want to get on the wrong side of. You may end up being gutted and that's never pleasant. Jonah threw a famous temper tantrum outside the walls of Nineveh because of a plant. It was a hot day, probably not as hot as we're going to be experiencing, but he really loved his plant, but he hated the Ninevites. He was already pretty grumpy that God had shown mercy to the Ninevites, who were the enemies of Israel. And so, you know, there you are. That even Jesus' disciples, when we get to the New Testament, two men who walked with Jesus and were part of his inner circle, James and John, two brothers, offered when they were rejected by a Samaritan village to call down fire from heaven to consume the rebels. And that's a pretty angry situation. uh, Anger is everywhere. It's everywhere and it sneaks up on us in ways that we oftentimes don't even realize and it takes shapes and forms that we give clever names to to diminish what's actually going on. It's wrecked more lives than we can calculate, and it's had a profound impact in the home lives of many people in this church. And we don't like to bring it to light, because truth be told, we're ashamed of it. Little wonder, then, that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronts it head on, because no one can faithfully follow Jesus as we are called to without our anger being addressed. And addressing it is precisely what Jesus means to do. So let's see how he does this by reading Matthew 5, and I'll begin in verse 17, we'll go through 26. The section we're looking at today is verses 21 through 26, but what happens in the four verses before that are actually pretty important to understanding why Jesus goes the direction he does. So beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, the first thing we're going to do this morning is look at the truth about anger before we consider anger's impact on our relationships. And then because I know that what Jesus says here is going to hit much closer to home than any of us would like to admit. We'll finish with some really good news for angry hearts like ours. So let's look at the truth about anger as Jesus reveals it. I told you that what Jesus says just before verse 21 is important to understanding what he's saying here about anger. And really, verses 17 through 20 are are kind of a linchpin for the Sermon on the Mount. Because we really can't understand what's going to happen after those four verses unless we understand Jesus' relationship to scripture, which at the time he preached was the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He's the one that it was pointing to. He kept it perfectly. He reveals what God actually means by it. He shows that it's the eternal word of God and that far from dispensing with it, we need it because he's the one who holds it all together. The scribes and the Pharisees, And the rabbis, they were the ones who claimed to be the keepers of God's word. Jesus says that their righteousness, however, the kind of thing that they taught and did, really was just a skin-deep false righteousness. Christians, on the other hand, Jesus' people must have a righteousness that goes down to the heart and works its way out from there. Their righteousness must outstrip false righteousness by coming from a heart set on God. It must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Which was a radical statement for Jesus' hearers because it was inconceivable that anybody would be more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee. Well, that's the setting for what Jesus does in the rest of chapter 5. In the rest of this chapter, he's going to take six commands from God's word and show that the scribes and the rabbis and the Pharisees had misunderstood what God was doing there. And then he's going to show the true meaning of those commands and how we as his people can walk in them in a way that was far beyond the standard that was being taught by the religious leaders. If we're Christians, then God's eternal word can't neatly sit on the surface of our lives. It has to go all the way down. And so beginning in verse 21 and going through the end of chapter 5, Jesus shows what this righteousness looks like. And he starts with murder in verse 21. And he repeats the popular teaching of his day. Look at what he says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And now, of course, God had said to his people, you shall not murder. That's Exodus 20, 13. That's the sixth commandment. This is true. What the leaders had done by that point in Jewish history was they had taken it into a direction that Jesus didn't Um, intend. They had kept it at bay so that it didn't really get as deep as God intended it to. And so Jewish tradition had taken the command, thou shalt not murder, and applied it in a way that fell short of God's standard. And so as we see Jesus saying here, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's what the rabbis had taught. They warned that people would be brought to judgment if they murdered, if they took innocent life. And so that word judgment there, will be liable to judgment, refers to the local court, which would decide what to do with the murderer. Okay? So in Jesus' day, if you intentionally took the life of an innocent person, you'd go before the local court and then they'd decide what to do with you, one way or the other. And that may be an appropriate first step and something that God's word would require, but in and it, in in of itself, it doesn't say precisely what God says needs to be done about murder in genesis 9 just after the flood of noah's day we see god making a covenant he promises never again to flood the whole earth he affirms the original blessing he gave to adam and eve and he tells noah and his family go and fill the earth and multiply on it and he affirms the preciousness of life and its value as made in his image and in the context of that covenant, he says in Genesis 9 and verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is the death penalty. It's non optional. It's God's way of dealing with intentional murder. And over time, the scribes and rabbis had lessened the force of God's command and made murder an issue of the local court, kept it at the civic level rather than an issue of the image of God, something that had to do with the divine level. And so even if the death penalty was given, they didn't necessarily go as deep as God intended with the command because they had misunderstood God's command. They didn't know what God was doing in the sixth commandment to the degree that he was doing it. And so Jesus comes in and says, but I say to you. So here's what you've heard, and there was some truth to it. But I say And it's important that we know that Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament in any way. In fact, he just got done in in verse 18 and 19 affirming the whole of God's word. What he's doing is he's correcting popular misconceptions about it. And so he corrects the misunderstanding for his people in verse 22, and he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So the Pharisees' righteousness was skin deep, okay? In their eyes, as long as they didn't take another life, they were good to go. But Jesus says, no, (laughs) no, 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 not so fast. The sixth commandment was never just about not taking innocent life, okay? It goes much deeper than that. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. He says that everyone who's angry with a fellow believer is guilty. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable. And by extension, that would go for sinful anger toward anybody in general. And so if the scribes and the rabbis had taught that if you were guilty of murder, you'd go before the local court, Jesus says that even sinful anger in your heart, even if you don't express it outwardly, makes you guilty to that degree in the sight of God. It's a pretty bold statement. Kind of makes us wonder, well, what is anger then? If anger is all of that kind of bad, then how do we define it? Can we? Or is it something that we just know it when we see it? We know it when we feel it? We see in the story of Cain and Abel that anger is as old as the human race. It's been with us as long as sin has. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus shows that anger is the seed from which the poisonous fruit of murder grows. Anger is murder in seed form. And even if it's never expressed outwardly, God sees our hearts. And that's why no human court is sufficient for dealing with it. No human court can possibly hold someone accountable for the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. Only God can do that, which is why the court that Jesus says we would be liable to, he has in mind the divine court, the court of God, the the seat of his judgment. The scribes made murder a matter of civil crime, but anger is a crime against God in the heart. And so in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus deals with anger in terms of justice. And he brings legal court imagery to bear to show our guilt as angry people, and I think the reason he does that is because at root, anger is a justice issue. It's a justice-oriented emotion. In Psalm 7 and verse 11, God is, is called the righteous judge who feels anger in his heart every day. And of course, when God feels anger, or when God experiences anger, it's certainly not sinful. It's holy, it's righteous, and good it is it's his indignation with evil because he is holy and because he is good he cannot ignore sin he has to punish it otherwise he wouldn't be good he wouldn't be just and as the righteous judge he is angry exactly in proportion to how horrible evil is how deep sin goes because all sin is an offense against the holiness of god So anger in itself isn't wrong, but where we get into trouble and what Jesus has in mind here when he's talking to us is that when we set ourselves up as judge, jury, and executioner, we determine that the person we're angry with is guilty of high crimes against our own sovereignty. They've transgressed our sense of what they should do and shouldn't do, and we will sit in judgment upon them and revenge ourselves upon them, and we will call it good. The kind of anger that Jesus is talking about is our heart's response to something that we've determined is evil, catch this, whether it actually is or not. We have made ourselves the determiners of good and evil, and we have matched every act of perceived evil with the anger that we express. In fact, most anger that we experience is the sinful anger in view here, Which is why Paul says, don't even let the sun go down on even your righteous anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on it. Because even when we're angered by something that actually is evil and deserves anger, how quickly in our corrupt hearts does it morph into the kind of unrighteous anger that makes us guilty before God? That's what anger is. And so how do we know when we're dealing with this kind of sinful anger? What are its hallmarks? What are the signs Look what Jesus says in the rest of verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. When we think of anger, we may think of someone going off in a rage and berating his wife and kids in a restaurant. We may think of somebody throwing a temper tantrum in the supermarket because they don't have the one item that they came to get. We may think of the kind of stuff that makes it onto the news and calls for police intervention. I used to work in a restaurant in Portland and one night I accidentally closed out the wrong check at a table and that that was a problem, okay? For my manager though, his anger at my mistake was such that he took a water pitcher and threw it past me and shattered it against a wall. That might be something we think of, oh yeah, that's anger. But Jesus says, hold up, anger starts way before the pitcher level. (laughs) It starts before you can even see it. It grows into the pitcher level and sometimes even to murder, but it's the same DNA. And How often do we insult others? It's garden variety daily life to call someone an idiot or a knucklehead or brainless or I don't know, whatever equivalents (laughs) we use as much today, but that's what the word insult means in verse 22, whoever insults his brother. It wasn't anything terribly serious, it was putting someone else down and insulting their intelligence is what it was. But Jesus says that this in itself is serious enough not just to land you before the local court, but before, to land you before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the word which we translate as council here in verse 22. It was the highest court of the land. Jesus is saying even garden variety insults are of significant offense. And if that's true, then how much more calling someone a fool, which to a first century Jewish listener would be like calling someone an unregenerate, degenerate, unsaved brigand. That's what it meant to call someone a fool. It was reviling, and that, Jesus says, deserves hell. And we don't want to misunderstand Jesus. He's not not grading these sins so that we're aware of this deserves hell, and therefore choose your insults carefully so that, you know, you won't get to all that. No, he's saying all of it, all of it getting sinfully angry is guilty of hell. He's getting to the heart of anger. He's getting to the heart of anger. And he calls the scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, Jesus himself, okay, calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites and fools in Matthew 23, and certainly it was righteous when he did it. So his point isn't so much the actual word as it is the effect of the word, the reason for the word, and the heart behind the word. For Jesus, he always expressed anger righteously and we, and we have, uh, but far more, he expressed patience, mercy, and love. He was angry for God's glory with the self-righteous. He was merciful to sinners. It's a murderous heart for us to demean another person. Even someone, okay, even someone who demeans us. When we don't start it, you know, and that's what kids always say, right? Well, they started it. Now, that may be True. But why'd you finish it? Jesus gives us another way. Winston Churchill one time was confronted by another um, person, Lady Nancy Astor. And she knew him and she said, Winston, if I was your wife, I would poison your tea. Well, that's insulting. It's not a nice thing to have said to you. Even though Winston probably gave many reasons to have such things said. Uh, He said, Nancy, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. You know, we get a chuckle from things like that. And boy, when you have wit on your tongue, how easy it is. But an insult is always anger in the heart. So we may never be guilty of physical murder, but we're already very guilty of murderous hearts. It shows up when your husband says something to you that really irritates you and you shoot back with daggers in your eyes. It's a murderous heart. It's that rude comment you make to your wife after she's just spent half an hour, 45 minutes preparing dinner for you. It's a sarcastic comment about the colleague who gets under your skin or your refusal to talk to somebody who's offended you, giving them the silent treatment. It's your yelling at your kid when she ignores your instruction to clean a room or maybe even just spills her milk. Doesn't she know better? And it's... Thank you. (laughs) From the mouth of babes. It's the smoldering resentment that we feel with the person on the other side of the sanctuary whom we've struggled for years to get along with. This is the heart anger that would slay our brother like Cain to Abel, but for the restraining grace of God. And since I know kids are listening, how easy is it for us kids to, 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 to call back to somebody on the playground or when a friend gets mad at you and yells, you yell back. That's just human nature. It doesn't stop with adults. We just are better at hiding it. And yet we may think it's not a big deal to call someone names, but it is a big deal. Jesus died for you and made everyone in his image. And so when your brother or your sister bugs you and you yell at them, friends, that is sin. Students, I remember, I remember with, oh, with such affection the days I knew everything. When I was 16, that was the peak for me. And it just went downhill from there. And my parents, boy, insufferably annoying, right? Not actually, but for me you know. And how often, kids, do we, do we call our parents' names behind their backs? And yet Jesus says that's the heart of murder. So I see that all of us, church, are more guilty than we know, and it goes far deeper than we wanted to experience. But thanks be to God, Jesus meets us where we are, and he tells us where to go with this whole thing. He shows us what to do with our anger by looking at our relationships with God and with others. Because anger— as much as it's a justice emotion, it's always a relational emotion as well because we're always angry toward someone, right? So we're angry with someone for something they said or did, even if they didn't actually do anything wrong, and so we figure out a way to take it out. Sometimes when tragedy strikes and people don't know who to blame, those are the times that NPR writes all the articles about God. We blame God when we don't know who else to blame because it surely can't be us. And and sometimes we're angry and we don't even know the reason why. And so what do we say? I'm just angry at the world. So anger is always outward. It's always relational. And so let's see what Jesus says about anger in our relationships, beginning with our relationship with God. Verse 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So after just showing that all of us are guilty of murderous hearts, Jesus paints a picture of his disciples at worship. Because again, who is the Sermon on the Mount for? It's certainly not for the world. Any effort for sinners who don't trust in Christ to obey the Sermon on the Mount, that's just rank hypocrisy. So, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes to show that he's talking to the poor in spirit who know that they have nothing to offer God. They mourn over their sin, they hunger and thirst after righteousness, and they trust in Christ alone. To those people who are saved by grace, he pictures us doing what we do, worshiping God. And if you were one of Jesus' hearers at that time before the cross, where would you go and worship? At the temple. No matter where you were in Israel, at least three times a year, you'd come and you'd worship at the temple. And you'd bring with you a sacrifice, a gift to bring to the altar. So as a Christian, you're at worship, okay? But sinful anger toward another believer hasn't just made a rift in your relationship with that believer. It's made a rift in your relationship with God. Now hear me, it's not that God rejects you when you have broken relationships because of anger. He, he, he can't, if you are in Christ, he cannot reject you. He cannot look upon his son who declared your sin finished and then say, I reject them, until they get their act together. That's not what Jesus is saying. But fellowship with God, that daily communion that we experience as those who are united with Jesus, that is ruptured by our sinful anger. And so we can't move forward with God in our relationship while our relationship with a brother or sister is not okay. You cannot love God with all your heart if you ignore his command to love your neighbor as yourself. It makes a breach in your relationship with God because it makes a breach in your relationship with others, especially with those for whom Christ died. Now, Jesus paints a picture here at worship, and he says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, it's, it's a picture of a genuine grievance. You, you've genuinely done something to offend or sin against a brother or sister in Christ. You've hurt them wrongly. You've lashed out against them. You haven't asked for forgiveness or sought reconciliation. You've walked away from that broken relationship and you've walked to God in worship. What do you do? Jesus says, stop. Stop. Pick up the phone and make the call. Do the hard thing. Own up. Own up. To the sin and ask for forgiveness don't make excuses for it and in the process talk about all the things that they did to to invoke your wrath no own the sin period reconcile and then come and worship come and worship because that is what pleases god and jesus is giving us a principle for obedience not a legalistic burden to bear so for example again Put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' disciples hearing the sermon. Jesus is from Nazareth in Galilee. That's 80 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So imagine you're at the temple having just come 80 miles. You're offering your gift and you remember about that other person back in Galilee whom you haven't asked forgiveness from. Jesus is not telling you to leave your gift, do the 80 mile hike, then come 80 miles back do the thing, then go back 80 miles. That's, there are some things that are impractical, and Jesus is never impractical. He's telling you, basically, be reconciled with someone that you have sinned against as soon as you can, as soon as you can. Again, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you would be in fellowship with God, do everything as far as it depends on you to be in fellowship with others. If you've sinned against someone, go make it right because obedience is better than sacrifice. And remember, Jesus isn't saying don't come back and sacrifice. No, he says you will come back and sacrifice. You you could come and seek God, but first go and make peace with your brother. But what if someone has sinned against you? What if you're not the one in the wrong? It's somebody who's wronged you and they haven't asked for forgiveness and you haven't forgiven them. What do you do? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Again, this is the daily relationship with God, where we daily come to him seeking forgiveness because we daily sin. And it cleanses our, our relationship with him. It frees us. Our relationships with other believers Are very, very important for this to be healthy. So if you want to grow as a Christian and have peace in your relationship with God, then seek peace with others by asking for forgiveness and also granting forgiveness. And to be clear, when you grant forgiveness, you're committing not to bring up the sin against somebody else. You're agreeing this will not come between us anymore. Jesus bore our sin on his shoulders at the cross and when we forgive, We are bearing the burden of the offense against us with the commitment not to bring it up, not to repeat it, and definitely not to talk about it with someone else. Gossip is off the table after I forgive you is uttered. And this is very close to the heart of worship. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, it's obvious to each of us, I believe, and it's certainly obvious to me, <laughs> that we're in deep water here. If what Jesus is saying is true and it is, then we are all of us guilty. I mean, I came to church glad this morning that I hadn't committed murder. And then I quickly found out, actually I found out earlier because I studied this week, things were not all well with my soul. Pharisees sit smugly by and congratulate themselves that they are righteous. Christians admit that their sins are far worse than they imagined. And that those who are poor in spirit come to God empty-handed, clinging to Christ. And this, this good news for angry hearts is the point of what Jesus is saying in verses 25 and 26. He changes the scene here from a temple court to a legal court. And he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus envisions you owing a large debt to someone who's coming against you with legal legal action, presumably because you weren't paying up as you agreed to. Well, you're on the hook, and you're on your way to court. What do you do? Jesus says, settle out of court as quickly as possible. Because if you're put into the hands of a judge who's charged with doing justice, justice might just look like something you aren't ready to do. You'll be on the hook till the last penny is paid off. It's debtor's prison kind of imagery. But what in the world does debtor's prison have to do with anger? I mean, not every lawsuit is seeped in anger, okay? Sometimes a legal matter is a legal matter. But remember what sinful anger does. If you're angry with your brother, you're liable. You're guilty. So even a vicious insult is enough of a sin to condemn us to hell forever because we've sinned against an eternally holy God who has made people in his image, including that person that we've vilified. And so no matter who your anger is on earth, it's always a sin against God in heaven. And if that kind of a sin against God in heaven is enough to make us liable to the hell of fire, then that is exactly the prison that Jesus has in mind when he says, you will not get out until you pay the last penalty. That's really bad news. It's really bad news for sinners like us who are guilty of a debt we can't pay, who are headed to a judgment where we will never be able to be acquitted on our own. But the really, really good news for angry hearts like ours is this. Jesus died for our angry hearts. (laughs) Jesus died for our angry hearts. Your anger has created a breach between you and God that you can never repair. It's given you a debt you can't pay, but what did we sing? Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin is left a crimson stain, but he has washed it white as snow. The sinless one hung on a cross, dying the death of a murderer, while he was being reviled by people who should have been in his place. And he did it for sinful, sinful hearts like yours and mine. That's why he was there. Friends, this is what he did to deal with your sinful anger and mine. And listen to how Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says that he committed no sin Have you acknowledged your sinful anger and the guilt that you've incurred before God's holy throne? Have you confessed that to him? Have you turned from it? Have you trusted in his crucified and risen son because the day of judgment is coming? Hebrews tells us it is appointed to man to die once and after that to face judgment. Do not show up to that holy court not having reconciled with your accuser who is God on the way reconcile now and know that everything you need to reconcile with God today has been done through Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. The judgment is coming, but the day is now to be saved so we can turn away from our love of sin and believe in Christ and never face God as the judge of our sins because the judge for our sins was put on Jesus. That's good news for angry hearts. And if you have believed that gospel, and you are no longer a slave of your anger because you are a slave to God in Christ, then you have everything needed to put anger to death. And yet, anger, sinful anger, remains one of the most common sins among Christians. And Sun Valley Church is no exception. And so, what do we do? How can our anger be put to death? Well, note what we've already seen in the service, in the liturgy. Note what the Apostle Paul does when he talks about what to do with sinful anger. First and foremost, we would be told to begin with the gospel and to continue with the gospel. That's the point of what we heard read from Ephesians 4 today. And, if you're, and this makes total sense, right? Because if your anger was put to death with Jesus, then Jesus' death makes an awful lot of sense as a starting point to putting your anger to death. So we begin with the gospel by which we were saved because the blood of God's precious son was shed because we get angry with our spouses and kids and coworkers and friends. That's the terrible toll that anger took upon God's son. And so Paul counsels us to never forget that as we're dealing with this all too common emotion. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, the day of redemption is coming. Not the day of judgment for us, the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ as gospel as God in Christ forgave you. If you're losing your temper, it's because you've lost sight of Jesus first. So drink daily from the fountain of the delights of God's gospel. And remember that God is patient with you, so you go be patient with others. Second, if you would put anger to death, and this is going to sound a little bit like, what? Train yourself to be angry for the right reasons. Train yourself to be angry at the right things. Notice the footnote in your English Standard Version in verse 22. It might be there in other versions as well. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, and then there's a footnote, and it says some manuscripts insert the words without cause right there so that the verse reads, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be liable to judgment. Well, friends, it's not just some manuscripts that insert that. It's the majority of surviving New Testament manuscripts we have. And I believe it's probably the original reading. And even if it's not, it's exactly what Jesus means. Because, again, Jesus himself gets righteously angry with self-righteous Pharisees. God is angry every day. So we know that anger in and of itself isn't sinful. The problem for you and me is when we get angry at the wrong things for the wrong reasons when we get angry with our brother without cause. Our pride is wounded, so we lash out with our tongues. We don't don't get what we want from someone, so we stonewall them. And then when God's glory is being maligned and his reputation and fame and honor is at stake, we sit back and we comfort ourselves that we're just being patient when in reality we're being apathetic. But this is just as wrong as getting angry when we shouldn't. Listen to what John MacArthur writes in his commentary about this. He says, We often need to show more anger at certain things. There are things in our country, our communities, our schools, and even in our churches about which we have no excuse for not being angry, vocally angry. Many of the trends in our society, many of the philosophies and standards to which our children are exposed, and some of the unbiblical philosophies and standards within even evangelicalism, in other words, in the church need to be challenged with righteous indignation because they attack the kingdom and glory of God. There's a story about R.C. Sproul back in the 70s when the doctrine of inerrancy, the the perfect nature of scripture was being challenged in the church. And he was in a big conference about this kind of a thing. And he got so righteously angry that he got onto the table, imagine R.C. Sproul, on the table, crawling across the table in defense of the honor of the word of God. Friends, we have no right to refrain from righteous anger when it's called for any more than we have the right to sinful anger when someone is innocent. Here's the thing. The more we treasure the glory of God in the gospel, the more we do that, the more righteously angry we will become at the right time. And the more we will be able to keep that righteous anger from morphing into the sinful anger that so quickly sets in and so I can't, I can't repeat enough, Paul meant it when he says, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on it. Righteous anger sometimes has like a 10 second shelf life before it turns into the other thing. Guard your heart and train it to be righteously angry for the glory of God. And here's the key to knowing the difference. It will always be, righteous anger will always be in reference to the glory of God and in love for him, never for the glory and love of self. And this is why, lastly, we must rule over our anger, because Christ rules over us, and we belong to him. And so we end this sermon where we began, with the story of Cain and Abel. You see, Cain was angry with his brother, and God came to him before he slew Abel. And this is the first counseling session recorded in the Bible. God himself is the counselor, and it was free of charge. He says to him, Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. See, friends, as Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and the power of sin has been broken. It is no longer our master, Jesus is. And because Jesus is, we can and must rule over Our anger because Jesus is worth it he rules us by his spirit and by his word and so we must strive to put anger to death and if you feel like your anger is out of control and you just you you no matter how hard you try you just can't control it and 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 you are in the throes of it very often then one of two things is going on first it is possible that you do not know Christ that you have not believed the gospel and been set free from your sins, in which case I would urge you to come to Christ this morning. Remember, this is what Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser as you're going with him to court. Today is the day of salvation. You can be set free from that burden now, the way that Christian was set free from his burden at the cross in the pilgrim's progress. Let it roll off your back as the glory of Jesus floods your soul and you confess your sins and repent for the first time. Or the second thing might be going on. If you cannot get control of your anger, you may be born again and believe in the gospel, and sin's power has been broken. But sometimes when we get into this spiral of sin and, and we practice something so long and so hard, we can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. We don't even know which direction the first step to get out is. And if that's you, I'd urge you to talk to your small group leader or an elder, or a, or, or a mature brother and sister in Christ, let them come alongside you and see the light that you can't. Help, let them help you walk out of this thing. Several years ago, the Holy Spirit convicted me that sinful anger is one of my besetting sins. It's something that has to be constantly guarded against, actively fought, repeatedly repented of, and regularly put to death. And one of the things that I found most helpful in my own personal battle with sinful anger is to meditate on, memorize, and pray regularly. A handful of scriptures that particularly focus on sinful anger. Proverbs is rich. Actually, this is one of the reasons I read Proverbs every single day. It's 12 times a year. It's not much. Anybody can do it at one chapter a day. But it will reap dividends in your soul. Ephesians, and James, these are also books, Proverbs, Ephesians, and James. Friends, if you want to meditate here on this, go to those books. And what the Holy Spirit does is he brings the word to bear on your soul. And where before you would get angry without even thinking about it, slowly but surely the Holy Spirit brings to your mind in the moment truths that you've been meditating on so that growth looks like being aware of it and then doing it less And then one day realizing, I am not the person I was before. The Holy Spirit has done great work. I'm no longer a slave where I was. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, Jesus is the way forward. So let's take his words to heart here as we recognize the utter sinfulness of our anger, that it's far worse than we imagined. And let's put anger to death by doing what Jesus says, by seeking peace with God and with others let's be quick to confess our anger and repent of it, and daily gaze on the Christ who was never sinfully angry and who died the death that angry sinners deserve. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, that you do not convict without holding out the free offer of the gospel, that you do not convict your people without the hope and remembrance of what Jesus did for us, that we are not guilty before your throne, but we stand complete in him. And because of that, we have hope that day by day we can grow in grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you endured for our sake that our anger might be put to death and not only our anger but all our sins that we might come to God the Father through you. We praise you for sitting at his right hand making intercession for us. Thank you for praying for us. And Holy Spirit thank you for indwelling us, for bringing the scriptures to our hearts and minds, for ministering the truth of Jesus' words to our hearts. Please help us, Lord, for every person who struggles with sinful anger, which is creating a barrier in their growth in Christlikeness. Help, Lord, that we might walk with you in patience, gentleness, self-control, showing to those in our own homes, in our workplace, our neighbors, our relatives, and people we don't even, haven't even met yet, that you are a good God, that you are a patient God, that you are a kind, loving, forbearing God. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things with thanksgiving, knowing that you will do it because you are faithful, amen.